some lunch. Although after having eaten all that cake and stuff, do we really need lunch? Oh, okay. Just kidding. Uh, Bill. Uh, Bill Gates said that the the word for the word for this age, and I think I think he may have written a book by the same title. He said the word for this age is velocity, and I think if you're in the ministry, you really have to share that concept that the word for this age is velocity. Velocity. I mean, everything is moving so fast. Even our own uh, our own relationships, our own uh, our own kind of networks. Have you noticed that even among Pentecostals, it seems like we're not as uh, oneness Pentecostals. It seems like we're not quite as family oriented as we once were. We were we were more connected, and now we're less connected, and we're all moving fast. And I don't think it's a good idea for us to get totally uh, separated from one another. I think we need to stay uh, connected and uh, interact. It's so important because once you become a lone ranger uh, in any profession, it's a very dangerous thing. And I think it's even more dangerous in the ministry. So we mustn't let the times and the push and the, the, uh, uh, the ambition we might have, the good ambition. I think there's such a thing as bad ambition and good ambition. And we shouldn't let the good ambition drive us apart so we become disconnected. I think the time that we spend in meetings like this, in spite of the fact that we have to spend all day 30 in bo- uh, Thursday in boring sessions, but in spite of that, our time together is so very important. You know, just being together. You know, there's something about it. I, 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 uh, I have been blessed through the years by going to conferences and conventions. I've been in good ones and bad ones. I've been in good services and bad services. I've heard great sermons and mediocre sermons and real lousy sermons. But I have never been in a church service, never been in a, I never heard a sermon. I didn't get something out of it. There's something I got out of it. And that time together, the fellowship, like just going down for ice cream last night, just creates that kind of camaraderie and, you know, those are good things. And you don't realize until you look back on it sometimes and think, man, that was, that was great. The times we spent together. They say in business and in life, philosophers and people that think about such things, And many people have commented on this in written poems and other things. That when one looks back on life, it isn't altogether what you've accomplished. It isn't altogether what you've done. But it's the people that you've had the privilege of working with that becomes the most valuable. That becomes the most memorable. And if you study the Bible and kind of look at it in its its wholeness, isn't it about relationship? Relationship with God and relationship with the church? For we are all members one of another we're all by one spirit baptized into one body and really that's the essence of the 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 bibles the essence of christianity it's a forgotten part of it i think to some degree but and is it not expressed in one symbolic thing one symbolic thing if you say what is christianity one symbolic thing when jesus took the towel and washed his disciples feet that's it and what is that about that's about hospitality. That's about relationship. So all the smart alecks and people with chips on their shoulders and people that don't want to build relationship, people that don't want to be together, these people are wrong, 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 wrong. Because you don't have real Christianity unless you have this relationship. You're not... What, what, why be in a meeting? Why be in an organization if it doesn't have that element? And so I think that's what God wants us to do. Now we're talking about 
momentum. Uh, momentum. We're talking about maintaining momentum. And in our first session, uh, we shared just common thoughts, but it, I think important thoughts nevertheless, about uh, our ministries and what they are and how we can magnify them. And it's our responsibility. God is, uh, God is in control. Let's magnify our ministry. But when we're in the process of growing, magnifying our ministry, working, we run up against something that's very, very human. So what I want to deal with now is this whole thing about moods. Because all of us have them. And we're going to, uh, to uh, deal with this. Now, Sister Mooney and I, we're going down the road as we do sometimes. And by the way, this is a very interesting... Uh, I'm going to suggest this as a technique. If you're kind of stalled out and you think you've got to get another Baptist book uh, before you can teach, let me give you a technique that will help you. If you're trapped in a car on a train with your wife, pick a subject, any subject like dealing with moods, and say, what are the best ways of dealing with moods? What are the best ways? And start working it out in an inner exchange. First of all, it will kill a lot of time. Secondly, you will come up with a brilliant lesson because you do know the answers to most things already, instinctively, because of your experience, your training. Think of all the teaching that you've heard. You have stuff in there that it, 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 the dynamic is to pull it out. It isn't to relearn it. You already know it. You don't need to relearn it. You just need to learn uh, uh, catalysts for pulling it out. What will pull it out? And that's what writing is. You know, the preacher, the preacher or the teacher or the writer stares at the blank page and he, he takes all that he has ingested and tries to figure out a way to get it through that brain onto the paper. And, and great material is in your heart and in your brains already. And you've lived it out, you've experienced it. But the problem is you don't have a discipline, probably, for getting it out. And, and Mickey and I, and I have to tell you, she is a tremendous contributor and just helping these, I, I want to do a lesson on the ten most important things. And it's good to work with lists like this. You say the seven most important things, the ten most important things in marriage. And uh, I teach a, a lot of marriage seminars across the country and also would do one great big huge marriage thing every year at Calvary. And this is the way we built most of our lessons. Because I got tired of reading and trying to put lessons together from all this collected. I, I don't like paste and cut stuff much anyway, do you? I mean, it's pretty obvious. So you're just getting in there and digging into your own brain and heart. You get a lot of good stuff. So I just say that. And dealing with moods is kind of where this came from. So we all have moods, do we not? You know, things can be going on inside your, your life and you don't know it. Uh, not to bring up a, a bad subject, but you can have a health problem and not be aware of it. So people drop over dead and so forth. And we often hear, well, no signs. You also can start having emotional problems. Uh, you can start. Uh, you can start having trouble uh, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, and not be fully aware of it until it's just kind of grown up. It's like vines on a building. It just starts, and pretty soon it chokes off. Weeds in the garden. They just grow up. And so, uh, I think that is why we need to monitor moods very, very carefully because we're trying to get momentum. We're trying to keep our ministry focused, and ultimately, it is about us. Physical can drag you down, emotional can drag you down, spiritual can drag you down. And it's possible for... You can be watching something and not know what's going on. Have you ever, have you ever seen somebody... Uh, have you ever heard a sermon and you can never figure it out? 
Ain't nobody here today. I'm telling you, there's no one here today. It's like, what is he preaching about? Uh, you know, and the foundation gets so long that you, you never can get to the subject matter. So there was a, a man that lived next uh, door to our church. He was, a, I, I think, a Catholic, as I recall, up in Muskegon. And so he knew we, he would always talk to me and kind of say, you folks are really weird. You make too much noise. But he, he, he was careful. He, you know, he, he went along. He didn't, he kind of had respect for God and God's people and that sort of thing. But one night we had a, a truck that stopped in front of, in the front of our church, because the church there in Muskegon came right down to the sidewalk. And so you just, you could park and walk right up into the church from the sidewalk. And uh, there was a big truck that stopped in front of our church and loaded every piece of sound equipment that we had in that building loaded and drove off thieves and of course the next morning somebody went by the church to pray or something one of the one of the actually as it turned out one of the sound guys gave me a call and said brother when are you not going to believe it we've been wiped out everything is gone everything is gone they took wire they took everything it was a it was just extensive robbery pieces of equipment of all kinds so of course it got in the paper and uh, then, so a couple days went by, and I get a telephone call from this neighbor, and he calls me over there. He says, Reverend, I want to talk to you uh, about the robbery. He said, my wife and I got up in the middle of the night. Said we, I couldn't sleep. Said, I got up first, and said, and I, she heard me, and she, she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm fixing some cocoa. And so she said, well, fix me some. And said, we got up and got some cocoa, and we were sitting here in front of the picture window, and said, we opened up the picture window. It was kind of a nice, bright night. I opened up the picture window. And we saw this big truck pull up in front of your church. And we sat there and watched the, those thieves load up all that equipment. And we said, you know, those Pentecostals are the strangest people. You know, they just, they're loading up all their sound equipment. They must be going, doing something somewhere. I said, why would they do that in the middle of the night? And said, I sat there, and, and, and she sat there, and we watched those people and said, why are they, why are they in such a hurry carrying that stuff out? Said, said they, they, they run around, they jump around, they have, a, you know, their holy rollers, and said, look how fast they load a truck. Why don't they take their time? And he said, it never dawned on us that we were watching a robbery. Said, if I had known, we would have called you. Said, that truck pulled right up there in front said, I never thought a robbery would take place like that. And so they just opened up the front door and said, I don't know how they, of course, he didn't know that they had gone around the back and broken in the back of the church and opened up the front door, just went right out the front door. And he said, I watched the whole thing. So you can be watching a robbery and not know what's going on. And you just don't understand. And things can be going on inside your heart. And the devil setting you up. Moods start becoming common. Are you still with me? And this will stop the momentum of your ministry. You can talk about revival. There's been many people that's gotten in a key place in their life. That moment. That moment has finally come. And suddenly there's an attack against you. I don't think you can do great things without fighting great battles. I don't think you can accomplish, achieve great things without going through tremendous struggles. So let's look then at moods and the effect of moods. And uh, what are we up against? Well, obviously, we're up against pressures. And what are some of the pressures? Well, constant preparation to give. Give, 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 give. Plugged in. Somebody's plugged into you constantly. And if, that, if you don't think that wears you out, 
Well, you do know. That's a, that's a, for this crowd. Let me tell you, you know. And every time you go to church, every time you're with people, it's always... And sometimes even when you get with your friends, you haven't seen your friends. And I, I would suspect, I don't know, I've never been a missionary, but I would suspect that this is more true for missionaries than it is for, say, stateside preachers because you're not together a lot and you're isolated. And so when you do come together, you might have a tendency to dump on one another. You need somebody to hear you. And so even in our friendship sometimes... I've had friendships that have deteriorated because my friend leaned on me too heavy. And I just got, I, I, I got where I couldn't stand to call him. I couldn't stand to go by because, now gossip, I like that. I think, I think, you know, people say you shouldn't gossip. But I think there's such a thing as harmless gossip that is just really healthy. It's cool. I like it. You know, you talk about people. Who are we going to talk about if we don't talk about people, right? And so, uh, I think you can have good, not vicious gossip, but just, you know, good gossip about people. That's helpful. And you you know why I'm for it? Because you're never going to stop it. So I just decided to jump on. I just think this is a good thing and just just go with the flow. Tonight we're going to be on the boat and I don't know if you want to bring up somebody we can talk about. That's fine with me. Of course, you know, we can't talk about anybody in this group unless you're planning on leaving. Is anybody planning on leaving today? Not now, right? You better be on that boat tonight. I'm going to tell you that because if, if Brother Strickland leaves, we'll start with him. And we'll fix him up. So, but there's another kind of thing that a friend can do to you, and it's kind of the drain thing. And uh, you, I think we should be careful of that because it, it can damage a friendship. But obviously, the constant pressure to give, and pastors feel it, missionaries feel it, and we're always in that mode. And people expect you to know stuff. They expect you to know everything. What's your view? Pastor, I'm sometimes going into church and somebody say, what do you think about them Iraqis? I, I don't really know. I mean, it's like, I don't know. Uh, should I vote for Kerry? Well, you know, I got my opinion, but... You know, people expect you to know about everything. So the pressure to give is constantly there. The pressure to know. So I'm supposed to know stuff. And uh, people ask me questions on physics. It's like, uh, I don't know. Cold fusion. I've heard of it. I've tried to preach on it a couple times. I don't have a clue what I'm talking about, but it sure sounds nice, you know. I preached on cold fusion the other night, Sunday night, and one of the guys went to, you know, this... Uh, Dr. Malov passed away. This is the big... Uh, the, he was beaten to death in his, uh, in his uh, parents' apartment. And he's the big guy, you know, on cold fusion, and he, he, which is kind of a cheap form of um, nuclear energy that probably it would be free energy so that they say that if this thing works, you can have this little gadget, this machine, this nuclear kind of generating machine in your garage that, you know, would generate your own electricity. You don't need to be tagged in anywhere. And, uh, and uh, now the government, the United States government, as well as other governments around the world, are starting now to listen because they, I guess they have some new evidence. Is anybody up on that? I see you nodding your head there. Brother Patterson, maybe. No, you can ask him. He knows everything. And uh, he's a computer whiz. And so uh, I preached on it. And so I just talked about it. I, I used it in a prophecy connection. And so some kid, one, not a kid really, but one of our young men went and said, uh, because his boss was like a big time boss, a big time guy into this nuclear 
cold fusion process and everything. And he do, he knew, uh, had gone to lectures by this Dr. Malove that was beaten to death. And what is interesting about this man was beaten to death. And just in a week or so, he's supposed to give this presentation to, to the Department of Energy for the United States. After 15 years, they wouldn't hear it. Now they have new evidence that says we need to get into this because the Russians are way ahead, I guess, of everyone else on this. So we got a new, uh, we got a new nuclear race going on now for energy. So anyway, I preached a little bit about it, and this uh, young man mentioned it to his boss, and he said, your preacher preached on Dr. Malov and nuclear coal fusion? He said, yes. Man, what kind of church you go to? He said, we got a smart preacher. He said, no. he said I never heard of preachers preaching on coal fusion. He, he turned around and gave him a stack of books that take this to your preacher. So uh, that guy brought me in physics books on stuff, and I'm like, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> and so, so this young boy said, uh, uh, he said, uh, well, you better, you better get to knowledge on this. This man's going to come here. You preach. <laughs> so the pressure to know, the pressure to know. So I don't know. It's going to be a joke. Anyway, there is this pressure to know. You know, I don't like to say I don't know. And one preacher told me when I was a young man, said, whatever you do, never say you don't know. Just say, if you don't know, say, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm not going to give you the answer to that because you need to look that up for yourself. And I've used that technique. Can I get a witness here? Anybody use that technique? <laughs> I've used that a lot. You know, this will be good for you. Look it up. You'll never forget. If I tell you, you'll forget. So, uh, and then you go home. Then you go home and get out the concord. <laughs> They're going to catch me on that one again. So the pressure, that's a big pressure. The pressure, of course, to carry on, to lead when you don't want to. Uh, you know, it's like, i got to go to church today. Why you got to go to church? I'm the pastor. <laughs> the drunk guy called, you know, on the old uh, a, the uh, comedians. And, and they said, hold that airplane. Sir, why should we hold that airplane for you? Because I'm the pilot, you know. Uh, it's a longer story than that, but that's the punchline. The pressure to lead. Now, you don't always want to lead. I think a man who has this, uh, I mean, if you, I don't trust a man that's in a lead mode all the time. Uh, I, I think a good leader probably is a little bit apprehensive in a, in a good way. He's a little bit careful. He doesn't use his power recklessly. He, he knows he is supposed to lead, but he's careful with it. And he may be even a little uncertain at times. You want a little doubt to be in the mind of a person that holds power. I, I want my surgeon, I don't want him to be, I want him to have a little tinge of doubt. Especially if he's a brain surgeon. You know, and he's getting ready to disconnect my uh, one cord from my other cord and all that. I want him to make sure, maybe double check. And I think leaders that are real egomaniacs are dangerous leaders. And uh, so we do have that bit of kind of internal doubt that's healthy. It's a healthy thing. And that can get developed into something that's almost like fear, or fear to lead, and then the weariness of leading all the time. Have you ever just wanted to go to a meeting and just not have to worry? That's what makes these kinds of meetings kind of nice, because Brother Rodenbush is carrying the load, and here's the Bucklands, and they're carrying the load. And the rest of you are just kind of brain dead here. I mean... Trust me, it shows on your face. I mean, you're here. How many know you're human? Now, uh, you know, I think 
you got to always be, be. Are you in a good observers? I hope you're good observers. Real leaders are good observers. You know, you're always watching for something. Don't just shop. Look for somebody. Ask me sometimes, where do you get all your illustrations? I pay attention. I mean, things, something's happening to you at any given moment, and you just have to pay attention. And so you got to know when these these things are happening to you. And then sometimes things are happening to you. If you'll give them a little push, they'll become bizarre. And uh, your life can, instead of life being boring, I mean, don't try to, don't try to. Uh, now, see, brother uh, uh, Enos, he fusses with the waiter, and I want to see how far the waiter will go before I run out of money. I mean, it's just a totally different concept. Ain't nobody gonna help. <laughs> so I think you have to be observant. I was out on the uh, I was out on Muskegon River. I used to like to take a canoe and go up Muskegon River, which is uh, goes back into the word Muskegon means swamp, and it's an it's an Ottawa Indian word for swamp. And so there is a, a river on that goes through an actual swamp. The old there's a a good bit of the Muskegon, Michigan swamp that's still there, the old swamp land. Much of it's been reclaimed now, but a lot of it is still there, and you can go up in there. Well, I was sitting in this little canoe. I used to like to go up. I'd take uh, uh, some books and anchor up on a little sandbar, and uh, the sun would shine in this little place sometimes, and I'd just uh, get comfortable there and uh, would read and study and pray out in the middle of the little river. Well, one day I was sitting there in my little canoe, and I noticed the ducks would land on this river where they couldn't, they'd have to kind of circle around. It was like a very narrow runway to get down in there. And these ducks would come down. And this one duck was not paying very much attention. And, and he, well, it must have been a she-duck, I guess. And uh, she came down like this and miscalculated and got a little too overshot the water. And when she did, she hit the water and kind of bounced like a duck will do, you know, and ran right into the bank and, and the little duck head go, ah. Now, I got the greatest blessing out of that. See, blessings are everywhere. You just got to pay attention. And I said, God, now if ducks can miss the runway like that. See, I, I might miss the runway occasionally. I don't know everything. And it's easy. See, that gave me comfort. It's like I'll being out in the woods and watch a squirrel miss a limb. Isn't that pleasurable? And the little school. Wah, 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 and they go, yes. We all fail. Everybody fails. Everybody make mistakes. So even though the pressure to lead is there, you may not feel like you're such a hot leader on any given moment and day. And you may crash into the bank and you may miss the limb and you may suffer some sense of, of uh, inadequacy and maybe uncertainty about who you are and what you're supposed to do. There is tremendous pressure. And when you feel that, uh, and sometimes it comes when other things are happening. You're out of money and you just really don't want to do it. Have you ever not wanted to preach? Do you really, are you still a believer in the fact that you're going to be automatically anointed at 10 a.m. every Sunday? Are you still believe? You need help. You need help. That is not going to happen. There's going to be Sunday mornings when the anointing is not going to be anywhere near your house or your head. And God is just not there. Don't look for Him. He's gone. As far as you're concerned. 
So the pressure to lead, the pressure to be the best. Now, preachers don't like to talk about it. Nobody likes to talk about it. But if you don't think preachers are competitive, just get in a racquetball court with them. And if they're competitive there, they're competitive everywhere. And, you know, what did we do last night on the way to the ice cream? We made fun of one another all the way. We're competitive. And, and our good brother, Tyr, was trying to lead us, and we insulted him. We, I, was, I was leading the... I called him Tierzynski or something, you know. Because we're all competitive. And, and we push one another. And we want to... And we, he was starting to feel the pressure himself. He, he, he didn't want a minute, but he was starting to feel the pressure. Because the pressure... Can you imagine what he would have suffered if, perchance... He had gotten lost last night. Would that have been? Would that have been awful? Would that have been awful? Oh, he said that. Oh, there it is. So he was feeling the pressure. I got a feeling Brother Roden was telling the truth on that one, don't you? <laughs> and of course, uh, who doesn't want to speak well and, and preach well and teach well? I mean, what? Well, we're not idiots. We all want to do well. And, uh, and we know, we wake up, do we not, knowing that regardless of what we do or how well we do, there's always someone that does it better than we do. Someone is always a little keener, a little sharper, a little better. And I hear people preach sometimes, and I tell you, I come this close to turning in my card. It's like, I think, my goodness. And what is really aggravating is some 24-year-old who is so gifted and so talented, and you think, this is not fair. For someone to be this talented. And, uh, but, so we all feel that, and that is real pressure. We don't talk about it because it's kind of embarrassing. But you know how I try, now I'm not perfect in this, but I try to say, you know, here's somebody, God, move me up a little bit, help me. Or maybe to drop back and to say, you know, maybe what I do uh, is unique, and maybe uh, I need to just be comfortable in my own skin and comfortable in who I am. And not try, because those that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. So that, but there is that pressure, and there's a lot should be said by, about that. But the pressure to succeed. I mean, all of you feel this. And, and, and we do this horrible thing to one another sometimes. We do the numbers game, and, and, uh, and uh, sometimes all of that is relative to so many sets of circumstances that it's not totally fair. And as we mentioned yesterday, you can labor and work. And who knows? It's like uh, I mentioned yesterday, the Bucklands may work here for many, many years, but the real revival may come based upon the seeds that they planted because they've been the apostles to this city. And so the biggest part of the harvest, they may never... It doesn't seem fair unless you understand that you're not working for money and you're not working for uh, fame, but you're working for the King of Kings. And he's got it all in his hands. And so we're magnifying our ministry uh, based on his, his, uh, his criteria. And don't let the world set the criteria. Don't even let the church, don't even let the United Pentecostal Church set the criteria for you altogether. I mean, I know we can talk about goals and stuff like that, but still you have to put all of that in the context of a greater meaning, and that is the will of God. So you stay balanced in your thinking. So the pressure to succeed. Now, those are the pressures. Uh, everybody, I hope you'll just think about those. The, and let's look at them again. Let's say them together. The pressure to give, the pressure to know, the pressure to lead, the pressure to be your best, and the pressure to succeed. Have you felt all those pressures? I've felt every one of those pressures. Sometimes more than I should. 
And you, if you start, if, by the way, let me just digress here a minute and say, if you start getting too focused on some of those things, because it, there's a thin line between spirituality and carnality. Have you noticed that? Thin, thin line. And uh, perhaps, you know, I say, uh, I said to somebody dealing with worship, I, you know, we got a lot of worship problems, in my opinion, in the, in the uh, United States right now. Because uh, there's a difference between real worship and hysteria. And if you're just pumping, 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 the young people today, uh, not to criticize young people, but young people today that are just getting into worship hysteria and not yielding to God, not yielding to the Spirit, I don't consider that true worship. True worship to me is when you yield your will to God, your mind, your heart to God. I mean, if you're, if you're running the aisles and jumping and screaming and, and uh, attacking the pulpit and all the kinds of things that's going on today... Uh, and then after church, you're committing fornication. I don't think you're a true worshiper. I mean, something something didn't click in your worship. And much of what we call worship today is really a cover, uh, is a cover over. It's a cover up. Uh, and I, I object to the idea that worship is the cure to all things spiritual. That's just not true. Uh, there's a song that uh, that we sing a lot in the United States. This. This is how we overcome. This is how we overcome. And I've been in camp meetings where they have sung that song the past two years until we are in a complete frenzy. Frenzy. I'm not exaggerating. Frenzy. And, 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 and kids, uh, I'm not, it's not even like worship. It's just frenzy. It's hysteria. It's almost like mass psychology. Which may be, may be part of what some of that, uh, the spirits behind some of that is trying to achieve. You know the great uh, some of these great uh, worship blessings like the Toronto blessing and uh, and Brownstown, they sing one song sometimes for three to four hours, and there's a shift in in kind of a uh, I shouldn't get into this, but there is such a thing as mass psychology, mass hysteria. Uh, there's a mindset that can develop in a service that is not of God. And uh, I, when you see this, now I don't know a lot about everything, but I know spirits when I, I I'm from, I hate to say this, but I'm pretty good at spirits. And when I see some of these spirits and they're very carnal, they're very sensual, uh, I'm not I'm not too excited about that. Is anybody still with me? But they were singing this song and I brought it up at the music conference and I tried to at our own music conference. And I try to emphasize very carefully because I don't want to criticize the song. Understand the song. This is how we overcome. And I know God inhabits the praise of people and all that. But what is missing today from music and from doctrine is this thing called repentance. We don't overcome through worship. We overcome through repentance. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. There has to be repentance there. And the, the, what we think is so fundamental that everybody would know about repentance. And yet, we're living in an age right now where you hardly can find a sermon on repentance. And it's like, they just start getting the sinners. Come on, everybody worship. You'll find God. You'll get healed through worship. You'll get saved through worship. Everything. And, and this is simply not what the Bible teaches. And just because you have... 10,000 young people or 100 or 1,000 young people jumping and throwing balls across the auditorium doesn't mean that you've reached a level of true worship. And uh, I can, Now see, uh, this is sad for me to say and I know I'm getting on a hobby horse. Forgive me. Oh Lord, I am messing up so bad here. I don't want this to go wrong in your spirit. But, you, you know, I, I can remember services where and I grew up in the PFW where the old 
the I guess maybe my memory is too strong of the old missionary sister that would start out hallelujah God bless us bless us bless us bless us and before that was through people would be on the floor weeping and crying and the Spirit of God would move and sometimes it would be hours before the preacher would get up and in the meantime people would be healed and filled with the Holy Ghost. Our young people have never seen that kind of worship. They don't even know anything about it. And it's beat driven and it's music driven and the words... See, how... So many words are non-doctrinal. They're non-biblical. They're off-base. No wonder the old-timers made sure that all the songs they sung in the church went through the hymnal committee. Because you've got thousands of young people singing songs that are not even true. So how could those be good songs or right songs? They have to be true songs to be true worship songs. Well, all right. That's, that's, that's enough of that. A word to the wise is sufficient. But anyway, let's deal with some of our moods. <laughs> i got a mood going right now, as a matter of fact. Boy. <laughs> That duck just hit that bank. <laughs> that squirrel just missed that limb. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you know, we waste time on the wrong stuff sometimes. And I think it's possible to get a church service emphasizing the wrong thing. The, the, the gospel is to go out and call men to repentance. And isn't it interesting? You know, somebody asked the question. There's a question. Uh, one district... Uh, has got on a, a, a district licensing, uh, and we dealt with this. It's not a big issue, but it's just it, it's kind of an interesting issue. Like, what comes first, faith or obedience? And and, and I, I would answer that by saying, when they asked the Apostle Peter, what shall we do? He didn't say, well, first of all, you must have faith in God. He said, repent. The first act is obedience. And I got a feeling that we could learn a lot about God if we would emphasize obedience, obedience, obedience. It's better than any sacrifice. Obey God. Just obey that word. And I know that intertwines with faith. But it's possible for a person to obey and through that obedience come to know God through obedience alone. Even though, see, faith seems to suggest that you have some kind of mental assent, that you understand something mentally and emotionally. And many times we can just obey God because we know we've been called to obey Him. And we don't know much about faith and we don't know much about geography. We're just following obedience to God. Some people call that blind obedience. I don't know that it's blind obedience. It's a craving for God that comes through obedience. So you have moods as a preacher. How do you deal with them? And I'm going to suggest that the pressure is real. But how do you deal with the moods? How do you deal with moods? And you have all kinds of moods. First of all, you deal with moodiness by appreciating your humanity and your frailty. If you, you get moody, the pressure's there, you get indifferent, you struggle with things, recognize that you are human. Is that okay? You are human. I mean, I have a limit. I've got a place where I can just go so long physically. Isn't that true of every human being? Come, you just crash, even if you try. You know, these guys say, I'm going to sit in that store window there and I am not going to sleep. And, you know, they have these big contests to see how long Mr. Disc Jockey can stay in the store window and not sleep. Well, he can go for a while. But in time, he will pass out and go to sleep. He's human. No human being has ever been able to resist the urge and the need to sleep for very long. I don't know what the record is, but it's not very long. What is it, 36, 40-some hours maybe? 
is about Max. And uh, I don't know what the greatest achievement is on that. But even to do that, you've got to slap yourself. You've got to fill yourself up with all kinds of caffeine. So appreciate your humanity, your frailty. Know where your lines are at. Know how far you can go. And uh, just, just deal with it because you're never going to get away from it. And some, some of you have certain proclivities. You have certain needs and necessities. Some of you are strange in certain ways. You know, why should you fight it? Just say, look, I'm weird. That's the way it is. Mickey's mother gave her great advice. When she was getting ready to marry me, her mother said, Mickey, I want to tell you something about preachers. You're getting ready to marry a preacher. All preachers are weird. Isn't that the advice? She said that all preachers are weird. And you know what? It's true. All preachers are weird. I've never met a preacher that wasn't weird. You have to allow time for personal restoration and physical, and that also includes physical and emotional restoration. Very, very important. And uh, you can overdo this, of course. Become lazy and uh, couch potato. But you do have to allow time for physical not just physical, but also emotional. This, I think, is the hardest thing. Because you can be taking a break physically and not be taking a break emotionally. And some guys, you know, on their vacation, they, they deal too much. You know, they read. They, they You know, you've got to get... A, to me, a great emotional break is to read something that isn't spiritual. I want to read secular stuff. I don't always want to read uh, Max Licato. You know, I don't want to read Christian bubble gum all my life, you know. So I want to read something beyond that. And something that makes me think some new thoughts. And some of the most inspiring material you'll ever read. Some of the most helpful, mind-stimulating, mind-jogging material is going to be written by people who couldn't care diddly squat about the church. Whatever that means. But they have, they know about the world. And they, there is such a thing as the wisdom of the world. Now, the wisdom of the world is against the wisdom of God. But it doesn't hurt you to know about the wisdom of the world. And there are many things that are relative to the world in general, maybe geography or history or whatever that you might enjoy, or physics. Maybe you like to read about physics. You might be surprised how many of our preachers really have a deep, deep understanding of scientific subjects. And it's very, very emotionally healthy to do that. So you get some time for yourself, restoration time, physical and emotional. Stay emotionally current. Bitterness develops over time when issues are ignored. And you don't believe this. You do believe this. You know this is true. And uh, most, most problems come between two people, Brother Rodenbush, when they won't deal with the real issues. There's a man who was in charge of uh, uh, Eli Lilly for many, many years, and he wrote a book. And the title of the book is Put the Moose on the Table. Put the Moose on the Table. If you ever get a chance to get a hold of it, you can read it. It's a relatively current book, about two years old. And here, here's the deal. He says, his, the premise of his book... If you're having a board meeting, or you're having a meeting with your friends or your business partner, and there is a dead moose in the room, a carcass of a dead moose laying over here on the side of the floor, and you go into that room, there is no way that you can have a meaningful meeting until you deal with that dead moose. That's the first issue. We got a dead moose in this room. So, put the dead moose on the table. So don't, you know... I've been in meetings, uh, uh, many, many meetings, board meetings at, at the general board level, district level, other kinds of meetings where there was something everybody knew about that needed to be dealt with.
But we're, it's like we're never getting to it. We sat there for days and days. And this dead moose is just stinking, stinking up the room. On every break, when are we going to get to this? You know, and it's way buried in the agenda. Don't do that. Just put it up there. And say, Boom, dead moose here. Let's get this carcass out of here. And when that carcass is out of here, Mr. Tobias said, then you can get on with the business. I think in your relationships with one another, if you've got a dead moose between you and your friend, you better deal with the dead moose. You got an issue, let's just get it out. Then you can start dealing with some of the other problems. But if you're trying to make decisions while the dead moose is over here in the corner and it's rottening, Mr. Tobias said, your decisions are going to be influenced by the odor of that dead moose. Because nobody knows how that's going to come out. So let's get it solved. So I think staying emotionally current helps the bitterness and it's one of the ways of dealing with moods. A action in, in regard to emotional problems. It's like you and your wife. Don't you feel better after you say, look, I'm going to tell you what's bothering me. And you don't want to, but you know it's not going to go away. And so you put it out there and the next thing you know, good things are happening. Establish strong habits of communication with family and confidence. And hope you got some family and hope you got some confidence. And if you don't have friends, it's probably because you haven't showed yourself friendly. Because there's a lot of people in the world. And isn't it strange, with six billion people in the world, you can't find one to be your friend. You know what that tells me? That tells me there's plenty of people to go around. But you got the problem. And so you need to find somebody that can be your friend. In life, they say you may have 12 people that are really your friends. And you may have one or two that are your close, close confidence. That's probably enough. You don't want too many people. <laughs> You're going to dump all your problems on. Somebody say amen. amen. All right. Live within the framework of accountability. This brings balance and reality to one's ministry. Accountability. Don't ever be afraid of it. It helps you just knowing you've got to come to a meeting like this and put a few cards on the table and deal with a few issues. Many, many times helps you to keep your books in line. Helps you keep your life in line. Knowing you've got to give an answer to somebody. Knowing you've got a CPA report to fill out every quarter is helpful. It doesn't hurt you. It's helpful. It makes your operation run better. And uh, we know it at, at the quarter, every quarter at IBC, every quarter at, Indiana, at the Calvary Tabernacle, we have to meet the CPA report. And he's going to come in and he's going to deal with all that. There's nothing wrong with that. And sometimes we make mistakes, have to make adjustments. But that framework of accountability brings everything into balance and brings reality. Reality. Reality is you're not out here. You can't just be out here by yourself. You're not just a... You're not just a, a, a fly out there that's just in roam around. No, every action you take has a consequence. You can't just be in a city like this and just do your own thing and mess up and, and, and just tear up the world and then the next person has to come in and fix it and then we're just in a perpetual... Everybody has to be accountable because there is a future. Whether you believe it or not, somebody's going to inherit your ministry. You may not like that idea, but you will die. And somebody's going to have to either pick up your mess and fix it and clean it up, or they're going to be able to take the wonderful foundation that you've built. Whoever built this room 200 and maybe 300 years ago that we're in right now, this beautiful floor, look at that, that's the original floor. The communists covered it with cement. And they got in here and jackhammered it all up. But look at it. Somebody put a foundation here. But a, a generation had to come in, brother and sister Buckland had to come in and clean all of this up to find this beautiful foundation that was there. Wouldn't it have been nice if somebody kept it like this? Well, enough said. Remain prayerful. Personal devotion is crucial. You don't need me to tell you this, but wow. The truth is that preachers don't always pray. Don't always pray. Uh, 
I'm, I, it embarrasses me to say this, but I've gone through little periods. No, there's prayer and then there's prayer. You know, I don't know that I've ever had a period when I was not doing the lay me down to sleep kind of prayer or God bless and God do and praying over my food. But there's another kind of prayer. And it's just a kind of a surrendered prayer. And I want to tell you, I'm sad to tell you, I'm hurt to tell you that there's been times in my life when I have let that kind of prayer, that real connecting prayer. I'm doing a lot of ceremonial stuff. I'm doing a lot of, maybe even doing some praying, but it's just not like, it's just getting through it. Uh, and that's not a good thing. Personal devotion is crucial. And everybody has their own way. I can't tell exactly how to do it, where to pray, how to pray, but you need to have some time in that. Enough said. Practice emotional self-discipline. Uh, moods are moods, feelings are feelings, but you do have to rein some of them in sometimes, don't you? You can't just let yourself go nuts all the time, crazy all the time, flying off the handle all the time. Rein, rein yourself in. I was in a. Are we out of time? Is it twelve thirty? Oh Lord, I'm so sorry. Okay. Anyway, the, how many more of these? There can't be too many more. Uh, I was in a store and there was this man uh, who, it was at Christmas time, we were at Kmart, Mickey and I, and there was this man buying a pair of gloves and uh, he, uh, he couldn't get, the pay thing wouldn't scan and he got real upset and they had to go back and do a price check and he got mad and he slammed the glove and he started cussing that girl and she was so frustrated, I mean cussing, I mean using vile language and everybody was so embarrassed and backed off and he was screaming at the manager. Finally they got him checked out and he's, I'm telling you this story, blah, blah, blah. And then he finally got through the line, walked right to the edge of the store where the go-out door was, the exit door. And he turned and said, I'll tell you, blankety-blank. And he started yelling at that girl again. And something got a hold of me. I never had a feeling like this in my life. I walked over there, that man, and I stuck my nose right in his face. I said, you better shut your mouth. I'm going to bust your head like a pickle. <laughs> Screamed at that girl. Mickey is horrified. I mean, I was out of control. And I have never done this in my life. This man just, he turned white and walked out of the store. And people started cheering. Yay! I thought, hey, all right, all right. And, and, and later, Mickey asked me something. I don't know exactly how she said it, but to the effect, did you have a clue what you were doing? I said, no, I was out of control. I mean, this man had just gotten to the point where I couldn't stand him anymore. But I did like that feeling. That, uh, you know, all the women were clapping. Yeah. I'm your man right here. <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you. You're, you can get out of control at a, your anger, maybe. I didn't realize that I had that in me. Now, that, that was something interesting. It really was. That's something very... Be a proactive is a good thing. If you can't do anything else, clean out the garage. I can't tell you how many times my day has been better just by cleaning out old drawers. And I've got, let me tell you, I've got some saved for emergencies. 
and you, you find old relics in there. Oh, I don't, I'm a pack rat, never throw anything away. And, I, and even when I clean it out, I don't actually throw it away. I just shift it to a new location. Can I get a witness? So know, your ter- know yourself, your limitation, your needs, your goals. How do you get to know yourself? You talk about yourself to your wife, to your companion. You talk about your feelings. Get some things out and really know. It's good. I know to some degree what my wife's limitations are. She knows she can. She's interesting. Uh, now, when I'm just whining, she will tell me, shut up or, you know, I'm tired of hearing this. You know, you're, it, she'll rebuke me. And she's right. But she also knows when my frustration is not just surface. It's not just griping. I'm not just fussing. She knows when I'm really reached that kind of thing. And there's a touch she has a way that she is like, oh, God, I'm glad I'm married to this woman. Because without that touch at a certain time, I might have fallen off the edge, you see. And that's what you have to know. And you have to know each other. So there it is. That's the end of that. Now, I think if we got two things so far, we're going to magnify our ministries. But to do it, you've got to know your moods. Because you are the one that gets in the way of yourself. Now, you can blame it on the UPC. You can blame it on Brother Rodenbush. You could say, if Brother Mooney had just taught a better lesson, I could have had a better... Come on, give, give me a break. Get a life. You are your own worst enemy. Not me, not Brother Haney, not Brother Rodenbush, not Foreign Missions Division, not churches. You are your own worst enemy. You're also your best friend, if you learn how to tap into all that. So, I think this whole thing with moods is very important. Thank you very much. I know I've gone a little bit over. I'll give it back to you later. God bless you.